We're continuing in our series in the Gospel of Mark, a series that we've titled, as you know, Jesus, Son of God, Suffering Servant, and Savior of Sinners. Today, we're looking at Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29, which records, by the way, the martyrdom of John the Baptist and some of the uh, most prescient words, I would say, that we find <laughs> coming out of the mouth of an unbeliever, King Herod, John the Baptist, has been raised from the dead. <laughs> Think about that as we walk together through this passage today. Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. And as you turn there, let me ask this. Have you ever felt haunted by something you did in the past? Just when you thought your deed was long gone and forgotten, it resurfaced like a vengeance. This was the problem that King Herod Antipas experienced when he learned about Jesus of Nazareth, the increasing fame of Jesus of Nazareth. The ghost of sin's past had come back to haunt Herod. For Herod had done something that weighed deeply upon his conscience whatever he conscience still remained within him. You know, there may be nothing more powerful, more poisonous, more painful, with the possibility of being redemptive, nothing more powerful, poisonous, painful, with the possibility of being redemptive than guilt. Herod was a man with a guilty conscience. This episode enters Mark's story before he reports the disciples' return from the short-term mission, short mission trip Jesus had sent them on. As we saw in Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 13, Jesus sent the disciples out to preach the gospel. But it is not until verse 30 that they return from their mission and report to Jesus what they had accomplished. Why? Why is the story of King Herod Antipas and John the Baptist in verses 14 to 29 uh, sort of sandwiched in the midst of the disciples having been sent out on mission? You read verses 7 to 13, and you see Jesus' uh, calling and commissioning of them, but you don't see the completion of their assignment until verse 30. And then you have verses 14 to 29, this story of Herod and John sandwiched in the middle of it, if you will. What is the point being made here? And why does Mark, the gospel writer, present the events this way? Well, 
Let me give you a simple, quick answer. And as we go along, watch that answer unfold even more so. The, the, the simple answer is this. The reason that Mark puts the story of John the Baptist, inserts it at this point in his narrative, has to do with the cost of discipleship. The cost the high cost of discipleship. Back in Mark chapter 4, verses 5 and following, Jesus referred to the person who hears the word of God, but who cannot remain firm in the faith because they are shallow and have no root, and they wither away. They, have, uh, they are shallow, um, instead of deeply rooted, they have shallow and deeply rooted faith, I should say, because they fail to count the cost of discipleship. That's why their faith is shallow and not deeply rooted. It's because they fail to count the cost of discipleship up front. Discipleship is not cheap. I mean, we sing, we praise, and we pray and glorify Jesus, our Savior. But remember, he died. He died a most excruciating death. And by excruciating, I do not only mean the spikes of the nails driven into his hands and his feet and the crown of thorns smashed into his skull and the hole plunged into his side while hanging on the cross. But what's more, the bearing of the sins of the whole world upon him in that moment in time. Jesus dies the most profound death in all of human history, in all of eternity. So being a disciple of Jesus Christ comes with a cost. And John the Baptist paid the ultimate price for being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. It's true. You know, there is a whole lot of cheap grace being preached and propagated these days, it seems to me. A sort of an easy believism, as some people would call it, where all you have to do basically is just show up and say some words with your mouth, even if you don't believe it in your heart, and somehow or another that's supposed to save you. You know, Paul said in Romans chapter 10 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. But easy believism simply says, just come and just say that you believe in the Lord Jesus and there's no cost to you. It's easy. It's simple. And from now on, all you have to do is sit in the comfort of a pew on Sunday mornings 
and enjoy the ride. The problem with that is, that is not Christianity. That is not cross-centered, cross-shaped discipleship. That is not salvation. There is no salvation in that. No wonder there are so many people who will come to church and who will even go so far as to join the road, and then after a while, you no longer see them. Remember when we were in Mark chapter 4 and Jesus was giving his parables of the sower, the seed, and the soil. Remember these people, they received the word enthusiastically, but then when things, when the going got tough, they disappeared. They withered away like far too many people do. And we who are pastors see this. We see this profound disappointment in the faith far too many times and far too often, all the time. I cannot tell you how many people I have seen who have come and said that they will follow Jesus, many of whom I never saw again, couldn't even contact them anymore. They just get lost into thin air. Some stay around a while and then they wither away. Some stay a little longer and then they fizzle out. And then a little, with many again, a little bit of trouble, a little bit of difficulty happens, some confusion the devil may throw in and they simply fall away. You know why? Because there's too much of this easy believism, cheap grace that we preach from our pulpits all over the place. And it's so popular, that's what people want to hear. It's like 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul there commands Timothy to preach the word, to be, well, to be faithful in season, to be ready in season and out of season. Why? Because the time will come when people do not want to, will not want to hear sound doctrine, but they will only want to hear teachers who tell them what their itching ears want to hear. That is the time in which, this, that, that time is now. That's the, this period in history is the biggest example of what Paul wrote to Timothy there in 1 Timothy chapter, or 2 Timothy chapter 4. So listen, we are living in that time where people just, you know, this, again, if it ain't easy, they don't want any part of it. Well, let me tell you up front, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, it will require, first of all, self-denial, because that's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9. If anybody will follow after me, he must first deny himself. That's the number one. Listen, self-preservation is the first law of human nature, as someone has said, but self-denial is the first law of God. And living in a selfish, self-centered, and narcissistic culture in which we live, the last thing people want is self-denial. So the last thing people want is Jesus, the real Jesus, the real Bible, and the real faith, which costs you to follow Jesus. Listen, you ain't following Jesus anywhere without it costing you to do so. I'm not saying that God makes us pay for our salvation. Jesus already paid for our salvation on the cross of Calvary. But to follow Jesus means to give up self to do so. That's the cost. Self-denial. Whoever will follow after me must first deny himself, take up his cross. That's crucifixion. 
That's death to self. Take up his cross daily as a way of life and follow me. For whoever, Jesus goes on to say there, whoever will save his life will lose it in the wrong and worst way. But whoever loses his life, for my sake, Jesus said, will be saved. One of the things that we need to do in today's church far more than we do is just tell people up front the truth about the cost. Because if they're not willing to surrender to the cost of the cross, not telling them in the beginning doesn't help them because all they're going to do in time is quit anyway. Let them hear the truth. Let us tell them the truth. For therein lies salvation. Grace is not cheap, brothers and sisters. Jesus' death on the cross, cross cost God everything, his only begotten son, far more of a price than we can even approximate or imagine. And here we have John the Baptist who paid the steepest price for identifying with Jesus and identifying Jesus as the Son of God. Hmm. We're in Mark chapter 6. Now here's what I want to take a minute to do. I want to read the passage to familiarize all of us with it because I'm assuming that most of you have not read it before now. So I want to read the passage and you read along silently with me to familiarize ourselves with it and then we'll walk back through the story together and see just how much truth God has for us today. Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. King Herod heard about this. Heard about what? About Jesus' fame. King Herod heard about this for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nurtured a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. Yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath. 
Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with a request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid him in a tomb. Hmm. Jesus was becoming more widely known and his fame was spreading throughout Palestine and beyond. He had been preaching throughout Galilee and Judea and beyond, fulfilling his messianic mission. Also, people were coming from near and far to hear him and see him, so much so that his fame had come to the attention of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas son of Herod the Great, ruled a portion of Palestine from the years 4 B.C. all the way to 39 A.D., 43, 44 years. He was known for several important building projects during his reign. And in the Bible, Herod is known for the execution of John the Baptist in our present episode as well as presiding over the one of the trials of Jesus, according to Luke chapter 23. The reign of Herod was filled with many personal and political intrigues. As a result, among other things, Herod was paranoid. This is where we pick up with this story in verses 14 to 29 of Mark chapter 6, where he hears about Jesus and becomes consumed with concern amid the confusion over who Jesus is. Verses, in verses 14 to 16, we are told, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claim he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, verse 16 says, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Whoa, what? Okay, first, let's survey the confusion among the people about Jesus. There were three prevailing opinions about the identity of Jesus circulating in public. One, that he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Two, that he was Elijah the prophet, Elijah the Old Testament prophet. Three, that he was a prophet like one of the great prophets from antiquity. 
At least among the people surrounding Herod Antipas, there was no clear consensus on the true identity of Jesus. The answer to this question depended on who you asked. I mean, look at it. According to verse 14, some were saying. Then in verse 15, others were saying. And then again in verse 15, still others claimed. <laughs> there was a lot of discussion about who Jesus is. But no broad agreement among people. Jesus reminded some of John the Baptist, so they thought Jesus was John the Baptist, Baptist resurrected from the dead because of his miraculous deeds. Jesus reminded others of the great Old Testament prophet Elijah of 1 Kings chapter 17 and beyond. Still others thought Jesus was some prophet of ancient history. Come back to life. By the way, all these all have the, in common the idea of a prophet having been resurrected from the dead. The conversation and confusion only contributed to Herod's par paranoia. As ruler of the regions of Galilee and Perea, he was always worried about threats to his sovereignty. So Herod, hearing all the buzz about Jesus of Nazareth, began to worry. He reacted just like his father, Herod the Great. Back in 5 BC, when he became alarmed about the news of the birth of Jesus, whom the wise men from the east referred to as the king of the Jews. You find this, you may remember, in Matthew chapter 2. That Herod was this Herod's father. That Herod was Herod the Great. And here now is Herod Antipas. Reacting in a similar fashion to that of his father, to this same Jesus. Now, three decades later. Verse 16 says, but when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Herod seems to be suffering from paranoia and fears brought on by the guilt of his having wrongfully executed John the Baptist. It's all coming back to haunt Herod like a nightmare. Herod had put to death an innocent prophet of God and the guilt of his actions were weighing heavily upon his conscience. Listen to him again. Listen to him again. Listen, saints. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. You could just feel the sense of fear deeply embedded in the words he said. John, whom I beheaded, has come back to haunt me. To understand why Herod was so haunted by the memory of John the Baptist, we have to go back in time to learn what happened. Verses 17 to 28 of Mark chapter 6 recount the events that led to Herod's unjust execution of John. So let's look at them again, beginning with verses 17 to 20. 
For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had put him, he had, he had him bound and put in prison. Why? He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. <laughs> and by the way, it goes on to say, when Herod, whenever Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Hmm. <laughs> One wonders, the text says that Herod arrested John and threw him into prison. One wonders if he called himself trying to protect John from his wife by arresting him and putting him in prison. Either way, well, John would wind up paying the ultimate price for his discipleship. You see, in addition to Herod's paranoia, verses 17 to 20 tell us that Herod had imprisoned him because she nursed a grudge against John, but had not been able to retaliate against him because of Herod, her husband. But the hatred that Herodias had for John was a serious problem for Herod because he knew he had to find a way to appease her. So Herod ordered that John be imprisoned even though John had broken no laws. John hadn't done anybody wrong. John hadn't done anything wrong to anybody. All John had done was what John was supposed to do. John was fulfilling what God had called him to do. And it got him into deep and serious trouble. Now listen, listen. Many of us in the Christian church today think that you know, when we're doing right and when we're doing good, we expect that good will come to us in return. But that's not always the reality. It is often not the reality that good immediately returns to us just because we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. But that has become, I think, if I have my finger properly on the pulse of today's current church culture, that has become the implicit expectation of too many people who call themselves Christians in the church is that good will come because I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, so nobody's going to do anything bad to me. Why? Because some prophet on television told me that I was going to prosper and I was going to have nothing but good come my way because I'm giving uh, of my money faithfully because I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And yet people keep running into the brick wall of reality. And it 
causes something of a moral shaking of them to the core when things don't go the way that you expect them to go in your life, they in fact turn around and go haywire in the opposite direction, leaving you to wonder, where is God? And what is God doing? And what is happening to me? I didn't do anything to deserve this. Why is this happening? I have tried to honor God. I have tried to do what is right. I have tried to walk with God. Why is it that God is allowing this to happen to me? Well, the simple answer to the question is this. Because you are walking with God, you may have been told or somehow or another acquired the impression that things would go better for you when you started following Jesus faithfully, but you have discovered that following Jesus comes with a price. Because following Jesus means that you will encounter the same things that Jesus did when he was on the earth. And that part of the gospel message, too much preaching has omitted. No, it is not always going to go well for us. Not, now, there are going to be times, yes, of course, and we're going to be blessed regardless. God is going to bless us regardless. But God did not promise that in blessing us, everything would be smooth, everything would go smoothly for us, or that everyone in our lives would do what they're supposed to be doing because we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. You know, like the parent who has sought to honor God but their children turn out to go in another direction. Like the wife who has been faithful to her husband, and then what does he do? He runs off with some stupid chicken head. Yes, I said it, stupid chicken head. You can quote me on it. <laughs> you can quote me on it, because it's true. You know it's true, all of you. Y'all know it's true. Theologically put, he ran off with some sinner. <laughs> he sinned himself and some sinner ran off. Listen. You see, the gospel doesn't promise us. God in the gospel has not promised us that everything will go the way we would like for it to go in our lives. God never promised. Listen, we are living in a world that has been deeply and profoundly corrupted by human sin. Everything that could go wrong will go wrong unless God's grace intervenes. Now, I'm not telling you to be pessimistic, and the gospel is not teaching us to be pessimistic. The gospel teaches us to be realistic. You see, we read these stories in the New Testament 
And we have a way in the seemingly in the back of our minds of excising all the hard parts and all the difficult aspects of, yeah, we know about John the Baptist, but then we don't think about the price that John paid. Can you imagine what it is like to have your head detached from your body while you're still alive? There's nothing pretty about this. But then there's nothing pretty about human sin anyhow. And the human capacity for evil is limitless unless God's divine restraining grace brings it to heal. In other words, people will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, as the New Testament teaches us. Here, look at this situation. Herod had to figure out a way to appease this woman to whom he was married. So he had John thrown into prison, you see. The reason for Herodias' wrath against John the Baptist was the fact that John confronted Herod about their unlawful marriage. Hmm. <laughs> Herodias had been the wife of, well, Herod's brother, Philip, until he stole her from his brother. John the Baptist had been proclaiming that Herod's marriage to Herodias was a blatant violation of the law of Moses in the Bible. Guess what? He didn't want to hear it. And neither did she. Well, of course sinners don't want to hear about their sins. Of course sinners don't want a prophet to tell them the truth about uh, the corruption of their sins and their unright. Nobody wants to hear. That's the why people don't want to come to church very often. Or they want to come to a church where they're not going to hear anything about their sins. They're going to hear everything is okay. And that they're going to be okay. And that everybody is going to be okay if you just drink from this inexhaustible fountain of false gospel. You know, you drink the wine of this easy believism, cheap grace, false gospel. Yeah, churches are full of people. Churches like that fill, fill up the pews with people. Why? Because they want to hear, they want to hear something good. Never mind that it's false good, false, false good. <laughs> Never mind that it's false positivity. Never mind that there's no truth in it or that there's just enough truth to deceive. To deceive you into thinking you're okay when you're not in the presence of God. You see, this is the problem with these false, twisted versions of the gospel is they make people think they're okay with God when in fact they're going to hell. And they don't know it because they've been deceived by some preacher who can't tell them the truth because he wants to fill up his pews and fill up his coffers with money. By the way, it's not easy preaching to empty seats. But if I have to preach the empty seats in order to preach the truth to some who are in the seats so that God will transform people's lives, well, what I know is, is I know God will reward faithfulness to his word. 
And God will not count how many empty seats I preached to. He will count how many people who were in the seats and who heard and received and believed. Meanwhile, we do the best we can to honor God. I do know this. I do know that there's not an empty seat in heaven as the audience for our worship. Remember, church, what I taught you? You're not the audience. We're not the audience. In worship, heaven is the audience. And God's throne is occupied by God. The seat isn't empty. And nor are there any empty seats in the heavenly constellation of angels who witness God's people at worship on the Lord's day. That much I know. I know that I'm preaching to a crowd way larger than is in here. And I know my sermons are recorded on high and I have to give account for them. It's in your Bible. Read it. It's there. Even the angels long to look into these things. These are the things that give, well, give us courage to carry on even when people fall away at various times in our ministry. John wasn't preaching. (laughs) What John was preaching was not popular. The people regarded him as a holy man of God, but it wasn't popular as we see in the story here. It certainly wasn't popular with people who could do something to him So he kept confronting Herod about Herod's um, unlawful, immoral marriage to Herodias. In fact, he said, you're violating the word of God. You're violating the law of Moses. For example, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 6 says this. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. And then in Leviticus, same chapter 18, verse 16 says, Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. And again in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 21, which also says, If a man marries his brother's wife, it is an act of impurity. He has dishonored his brother. In addition to all this, my friends, Herodias was also the niece of both her husband Philip and her first husband Philip, and she was the niece of her second husband now, Herod Antipas. In other words, Herodias married two of her uncles. This is an incestuous mess of a family. These people were living in violation of the word of God and John the Baptist was the prophet whom the Lord sent to confront them about their sins. Verse 20 says, when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Hmm. Herod strangely was strangely drawn to the truth 
that John the Baptist preached. He feared John's righteousness, and yet he liked to listen to him. And even though Herod liked listening to John's preaching of repentance, he still himself never repented and believed. The scripture says Herod was greatly puzzled whenever he listened to John's preaching. In other words, Herod was perplexed and astounded by the things that John preached. This was due to Herod's utter lostness, brothers and sisters. He was devoid of spiritual understanding. He was desperately in need of grace, and yet he would not repent. And his wife Herodias was even worse, for she hated John and wanted him dead. Herodias would finally get her opportunity for revenge against John the Baptist, according to verses 21 through 28, which says this, Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she ran out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, her mother answered. And once the girl hurried into the king with a request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Hmm. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, as we've seen, he would not refuse her. So he immediately sent out an executioner to do the dastardly evil deed that was done to John and bring back John's head on a plate. Herod threw himself into a big birthday party and invited a number of his important guests to celebrate with him. Listen, many of these guests were the inner circle of Herod's government, as well as members of the aristocracy. They were, as, as someone has written, the top brass and the upper class of Galilean society. During the festivities, Herodias' daughter performed a special dance for Herod and his guests. The whole scene reeks of moral rottenness. A mother sends her daughter into the party to perform a perhaps erotic dance routine in front of all these depraved male onlookers and the king himself. What mother would do such a thing? Only the most morally depraved human would parade her child as bait in front of a room full of men. Moral rottenness, depravity. This is just wrong in every sense of the word. But Herodias 
had even more sinister ambitions. This wasn't about, for her, this wasn't, a, this wasn't simply about some sort of sordid uh, routine in order uh, to please all of these male, on, male onlookers and gawkers. Oh no, she had far more sinister ambitions. The girl was nothing but a pawn in a bigger plan. Her own child, her own daughter. Now I know all of us have had stories, have heard of stories not dissimilar from this or seen up close and personal stories not dissimilar from this. She knew exactly, speaking of Herodias, she knew exactly how to trick and trap Herod into her diabolical purposes. Well, he had already tricked and trapped himself by marrying his niece. And at that, stealing her from his brother. So one sordid affair leads to another sordid affair, which leads to another sordid affair. And in the process, an innocent, the life of an innocent, God-fearing, righteous man, a prophet, is taken. And not just any prophet. A man about whom Jesus said, no one was greater than John the Baptist. And yet his life is taken by this moral, by the ravages of this moral rottenness and depravity. Don't you ever again ask why there's a place called hell. Don't you ever question God about his divine judgment upon human sinners. We all deserve hell. We all deserve to be punished eternally for our sins. The fact that God was gracious enough to send his one and only son into the world to save us from the eternal penalty and consequences of our sin is nothing but God's love and grace given to us. Nothing that we ourselves could have ever earned. That's the gospel and we are to forever give God praise and glory for it because what you deserve, he did not give. He gave salvation in place of what you and I deserve. Salvation for all who would repent and believe that message of John the Baptist. Her daughter's dancing so pleased Herod and his guests that he foolishly offered her as much as half of his kingdom. By the way, his offer was also foolish because the emperor in Rome would never have approved any such promise. <laughs> Herod's drunkenness and his immorality led him to make this rash and irresponsible vow to Herodias' daughter in front of all of his guests. The girl consulted her mother on what she should ask from the king. At this point, Herodias' evil plan comes into clear view. She tells, her, she tells her daughter to ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. 
Not just the head of John the Baptist, but the head of John the Baptist served on a platter. Seriously? Yes. Herodias, she was deadly serious. Verse 26 says, the king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. You see, Herod had managed to protect John the Baptist from Herodias, but now he would be obligated to fulfill his foolish promise. Herodias did not care about her daughter's dignity as a young woman. She did not care about Herod's kingdom. She was bent on revenge against the man of God. She was determined to destroy God's prophet, John the Baptist. And there was not anything she would not do to get him. You know, this reminds us of the story of Elijah the prophet. Speaking of Elijah in earlier verses here, this reminds us of the story of Elijah the prophet and Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 19. Well, you may remember in this story that 1 Kings chapter 18 records what we refer to as the battle of the gods on Mount Carmel. And remember that the result of that battle was that Elijah the prophet overcame the 450 uh, idolatrous prophets of Ahab and Jezebel. And they put those 450 idolatrous uh, priests to death. And the next day or so, Jezebel sent a message to Elijah vowing that she was going to get him. And for the first time in his life, the prophet Elijah became afraid and ran. When he shouldn't have, he didn't have to run. Because just like God put those 450 idolatrous priests and prophets of hers to death, God would put her, eventually he would put her to death in the worst way, and he did. He punished her for her sins, as well as Ahab, her husband. So John the Baptist was beheaded in prison, and his head was given to Herodias, according to verses 27 and 28. Verse 29 then says, on hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. They came and honored the remains of John, their, their leader, by burying his remains in a tomb. John's disciples would come and retrieve his body, bury him. But John had paid the ultimate price for his faithful prophetic preaching of the word of God. Now, listen carefully, brothers and sisters, as I come to a close. The fate of John the Baptist would foreshadow the coming fate of Jesus. Jesus would also be put to death, though he was innocent of all sin. Jesus would suffer and die on a Roman cross for the sins of the word. Not only that, 
But the disciples would come to understand that the call to carry the gospel of the cross often requires the greatest cost. The greatest cost. The cost of the gospel of the cross. Remember, Jesus said it. Anybody who will follow me must first deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In this story, we see the high cost of discipleship in the example of John the Baptist. So while Jesus has been has sent these 12, because remember, this is the 12. Later, he will send 72 of them. But he sends out the 12 for the first time, according to verses 6 through 13 in this chapter. He sends those 12 out to do what he had authorized them to do. And in verse 30, the, the scripture tells us that the disciples would return to report to Jesus all that they had accomplished on mission but eventually several of them would experience the same fate as Jesus and John the Baptist had experienced. You see, taking up the cross of Christ means death to self and salvation in him. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before your holy presence and we thank you today for this blessed privilege to be called your children, to be your people, to honor, to worship, to serve and to glorify you. We thank you for the call of the cross upon each of us who are saved. We thank you for your grace and your goodness, O oh God. We thank you for the blessing and the privilege of your word today. Speak to us and speak to our hearts even after this worship service by the power of this word that you have spoken to us today. Thank you, O oh God. We pray for the salvation of sinners right now. We pray, O oh God, for the power of your word and the power of the gospel, the conviction of the Holy Spirit to be brought to bear upon the soul of every sinner, every person who is without Christ, who is without God and without hope in the world. Father, we pray right now that you will melt the stony, hard heart and bring him or her to faith in Jesus. And oh God, our Father, we pray right now for the saints, for those who are saved, we pray that your word and the power of the gospel will strengthen us for the, for the journey ahead. As we deny ourselves, take up the cross and follow Jesus daily. In his powerful, all-powerful name we pray. Amen.